On round one this morning, Dave Trafford is here, host and producer of On the Ledge, the Ontario Politics Podcast. Lisa Raitt, a former federal cabinet minister. Toronto lawyer Courtney Betty from Betty's Law. It's nice to have y'all and happy Friday. And let's actually start with this uh, business of the OPP. It's not that they've officially opened an investigation. I guess we could call this an investigation into an investigation. But they have received complaints about the reopening of the Green Belt and allegations, perhaps, that there was some insider dealing. Uh, Courtney Betty, how dangerous is this? I just, I don't, I don't see, unless there was some, you know, bald-faced skullduggery, I just think maybe some people got the signals, but I don't see this as uh, something that's going to lead to anything criminal. Well, it, it really potentially, John, could be very explosive. And we don't know what happened in the back rooms, but the fact that the Ontario Provincial Police is prepared to investigate, uh, this could open up a can of worms for the Premier, um, where on the one hand, he was telling a private group, hey, we're going to open up the Green Belt. On the other hand, he was saying publicly we're not. And then it turned around and there's a little bit of a flip-flop here. So I think that there could be um, some serious challenges just based on the kind of investments that were made in those short time frame. It seems to me that individuals had to had some level of confidence that this was going to happen. And I think that's where the, the OPP is going to look at. Where did they get that level of confidence from? See, Dave Trafford, I think the threshold of proof would be pretty high. And I, even if there was some actual insider dealing, I don't think they're going to find any kind of a trail of phone messages or emails. Well, I, I know I'm surrounded by the lawyers and the, the roundtable yeah. here, so I will defer to them on the legal stuff. But the, but, the, but the other side of this, though, is, and I think it's important to point out, that the Toronto Star story says that they are considering the opportunity or the option of an investigation. Right. So they haven't even got to the investigation yet. They're still trying to decide whether there's merit for an investigation, never mind whether there's merit for laying charges or going uh, you know, a, any further than that. Uh, if, to me, this was a whole lot of column space for the Star to be able to regurgitate the story that they had done uh, on the uh, on the green belt uh, but just by putting up well the OPP is still considering whether or not to uh, you know have an investigation because they've received complaints well we knew about the complaints a long time ago and to Deb Hutton's point earlier this morning the complaints aren't necessarily associated at all with any kind of insider trading going on here they're just people bitching because they don't want to have anything any changes to the to the green belt so there's a lot of smoke around the story uh, I'm just not sure that it's it's pointed enough yet to say, you know, whether or not we should be talking about an investigation or not. The OPP has not said that they're there yet. Yeah. Okay. So, Lisa Rate, I would prefer mm-hmm. to, you know, sprint from what Dave Trafford just said. Let's get back to if you don't like the reopening of the Green Belt, grieve that, but quit trying to pretend that there's something criminal going on here. But here's the thing. I mean, the NDP, the incoming NDP leader has just been given an incredible gift because the fact that they can stand in the ledge and say, look, the OPP is investigating this matter without going into the details of what that actually means. It gives an air of legitimacy to a soundbite of complaints. And, you know, it's something that they're going to build off of for the next three years. It's not going to go away. If they're smart about it, they're going to hammer on this day in, day out and wait for the government to make mistakes or say something silly or see if something comes out of the OPP uh, interviews that they're currently conducting. 
Uh, Lisa Ray was mentioning the incoming NDP leader, and the party has revealed they're going to move, they're going to expedite the installation of Merritt Stiles, so she is officially the leader of the party and the leader of the opposition when the House reconvenes on the 21st of February. You're our politics mainliner here, Dave Trafford. Mm -hmm. So how does this change the complexion of anything, or does it? I don't think it does a whole lot. It just accept that it sort of stands uh, Merritt Styles up as the voice now, the face of the the NDP. I think they, they found themselves in a very awkward position to begin with because nobody but she wanted this job, which I think is a real you know that, that's a blight on the whole system, generally speaking. That nobody was willing to step up and contest for the leadership of the official opposition, by the way, in Ontario. Um, and then so all of a sudden, Peter Tabbins is in kind of a weird place, right? I mean, as the interim leader, so it, it makes sense that they put this forward when the house comes back after family day they have a face and a voice that can stand up challenge doug ford and i think to lisa's point she's going to be really good at that is she a premier in waiting probably not but i guarantee you she's the opposition leader in waiting yeah oh absolutely well lisa ray let me ask you then um because you know having served in politics you know well that you don't just vote in in a government you vote out a government and there doesn't see you know doug ford seems pretty comfortable right now too early to tell, but yeah, the government is comfortable. The next budget will be interesting to see what they, they plan on doing in the budget. This is the time when you make your big moves, and clearly some have already been made, and they're going to continue, I would suspect, to do that in the in the coming months, especially since you still have uh, an Ontario Liberal Party that is leaderless and somewhat aimless, and that's going to be a good opportunity for them to push through what they'd like to push through, their legacy projects, and it really just comes down to Merritt Stiles and what she's going to do in the legislature to to hold the, the government to account, but yeah, I don't see anything that would be causing the government to take their foot off the gas. Sorry, the Liberals are circling the bowl. Let's just put a okay, well, point on it. Come on. <laughs> then, absolutely, that brings me to the next story, because I wanted to ask uh, all of you, and start with Courtney Betty, a report coming out yesterday that is just a scathing indictment of how the Liberals ran the last election. I think they thought they were going to come back to <laughs> opposition status, and it was just a wet firecracker all around. And I think a lot of people are beginning to think, okay, maybe the, you know, it's, the party's had its day, and then we're done. What do you think? John, obviously they're not listening to the show in the morning because we told them that six months ago, way before <laughs> hey, the election. <laughs> all they had to do was just, I mean, it was all clear. So why go through this study? We knew that the leader didn't have a brand. We knew all the challenges that the, that the, 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 the party was facing. So this is, you know, this is nothing new or surprising at all. Although, Dave Trafford, I mean, they were such a powerhouse. I mean, they held power for how many years? They had two different premiers. They, so it was always presumed that power would go between the conservatives and the liberals. And now the liberals have gotten, they don't have any game. Well, that's a problem, though, oftentimes when you sit in that chair that long, there's a complacency that sort of builds in. There's a certain assumptions that you make. And I think, you know, what one positive out of this, this is a liberal report about the liberal party. And right. I just look at it and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be so wonderful if we had this sort of morbidity conference <laughs> assessment every time we had something in public that happened, good or bad? This is unvarnished. It is actually right to the point. There's no punches pulled here. Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, somehow the they were blaming the leader for poor campaigning. Let's face it, the Liberals blew it when they elected Del Duca as their leader. 
They should have seen that coming. I don't know how they didn't see that coming. Never mind this loss in the most recent election. So there's there's the problem. And the other focus on platform. I, I don't know, maybe Lisa has a different thought on this, but I don't think the platforms are nearly as uh, important or have the weight that we used to think they have because of the way social media works. Doug Ford ran his first campaign without a platform, and look what he did. So I, I still think they're looking through the wrong end of the telescope here. Yeah, uh, well, Lisa, mm-hmm. Ray, do you agree that platforms are kind of going out of style? It's more about leadership and brand? Platform's an important part of the talking points that the leader puts forward, but the leader has to deliver at the end of the day. But here's here's something that I thought of this morning. So, yeah, the report comes out. They're blaming Del Duca for everything. It's his fault. It's not the party brand. It's the leader brand. But guess what? Steve Del Duca just won mayor of Vaughan. So it's not Steve Del Duca that can't get elected. It's the Ontario Liberal Party that can't get elected. So they got to dive a little bit deeper on exactly what happened. And then the notion that you always blame the leader, and that's the... You know, that's the fall guy. We do it in the Conservative Party as well. It's all the leader's fault. Hey, he just won the votes of his municipality. Uh, Courtney, Betty, I know you're hot on this story, and I'm, I, I imagine it's from a legal perspective, but I want to hear about your uh, impressions of the city of Windsor. A lawsuit is still going forward for workers who were cashiered out for not getting their vaccinations, even though they have been rehired. What do you think the case law one or two years from now is going to be? Well, John, this is so fascinating because when I started down this path, everyone said, this is impossible. You know, people need to go on with, with their own lives. They're never going to get their jobs back. There is an evolution happening in labor law because of COVID. And it'll be interesting to see in terms of the rights between the employer and the employee. So for me, it's just really great that I can get, you know, first responders and, you know, many other individuals back to work in Windsor, having worked there for many years after they were told, hey, if you're not going to get vaccinated, you're fired. That's the end of it. So for me, it's a it's a really positive thing. And it's an evolution that I believe is going to take place um, in the legal front. Although, Lisa Ray, we do know through established law already that these vaccine mandates have been upheld. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. And then I guess, you know, if we get to, God forbid, another pandemic, then we're all up against this over again. Yeah, but perspective is everything. And I'm sure that people are now taking a look at what happened and whether or not uh, people were treated fairly and whether or not that means that they can't work now. And I just want to give props to Courtney for taking on the case and uh, getting the result that he did. Good job. I appreciate it. <laughs> when does this go to trial? Um, it's going to go, go to trial sometime in May, in May, John. But for me, really and truly, I just wanted, I was just hurt, to be honest, when I heard the stories of individuals and the tragedies that they were facing you know, being cut off at the knees. And so for me, it was just great that I can get them back their employment and the first start to getting their lives back to some element of normality. Uh, Dave Trafford, we've talked in the past about uh, sporting events, so I have to imagine you were watching the juniors last night. Did you wake up this morning and remind yourself that something amazing happened? Uh, no, well, I, I would look forward to it. I, I've been following this, you know, obviously watching all the games since Boxing Day and having a grand time with it. And I, and I heard you and Matt kind of kicking around the idea that if we had lost, it would have, you know, put a dent in our national identity. I think there's a huge difference now. We have evolved in terms of our cultural approach to hockey. There were four teams that could have won a gold medal in this tournament, any one of them. And I don't think, generally speaking, 
Would we have been disappointed if the if Czechia had scored in overtime? Of course we would have. But it wouldn't be because we had a problem with our program. And I think the hockey on the ice is really fun to watch. It's interesting to see how it the game has been elevated internationally. I mean, we've got teams like Latvia and Austria now playing to win, not playing not to be beaten. So there's a big difference in terms of the international tone of the sport. The question I have this morning, though, is what does this say? Okay, it's great that we're on ice, but what got lost in the conversation or what was muted in the conversation all the way through this tournament was what's happening with Hockey Canada. Where is the cultural shift there? How is that reflected at all in what we see in the development program? Again, we can distinguish between the two things, but let's not lose sight of the fact that the reason that Hockey Canada is in trouble is because of one or a couple of uh, tournaments like this produced, you know, a situation where a young woman said that uh, she was sexually assaulted by members of Team Canada. Where are we with that? I think, you know, I I realize it's kind of a hard time to be talking about it, but it kind of reminds me of running into a tragedy and saying, well, this is not the time to talk about problems. It is actually the time to talk about it because there's such a focus on on Hockey Canada. I'm waiting to hear what they have to say in the next couple of days on this. Okay, and with 60 seconds on the clock, I understand, Lisa Raitt, you are amongst those who are very excited about the new book, Spare, the biography coming out on Tuesday. Only because it shows me that the royal family has the same kind of troubles that my family has. I've got two boys who, you know, get into it. One will break the other one's necklace, push the other one to the ground. Mom steps in and says, go to your quarters kind of thing. This is like normal stuff. I don't know why Prince Harry thinks that he is unique in the world in dealing with family tribulations. And quite frankly, uh, you know what? I'm I'm not going to read the book. I'm not interested in it. And I, and I feel terrible that they're airing their deep family interactions in the way that they're doing for money. Thank you all very much. Great to have you this morning. Courtney Betty, Lisa Raitt, and Dave Trafford. And yeah, I agree with uh, an aspect of Lisa's take on the book. I was just reviewing some comments that people made about this biography coming out on Tuesday. And somebody once said of the Royals, never let sunlight in on the magic. And what Harry is doing and what Diana did before him is exposing this family for what it is, just like any other family. So if there's no magic to being royal, then why do we have the crown in the first place? It's 8 o'clock.